Let's take a moment, turn in our Bibles to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And if you're keeping score at home, and I know you are, um, we're going to read verses 1 to 7 this morning. <clears throat> now you may be thinking, well, we preached verses 1 to 6 last week. We did. And I'm not going to preach verses 1 to 6. I'm only going to preach verse 7 today. But I want to read verses 1 to 6 and leading up to verse 7. And there's just a lot in verse 7, and I want to tell you about it. So that's why we're going to do it that way. Um, so verse 7 is what we'll preach. But we'll start in verse 1. Therefore, uh, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And here's our verse for the day. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Amen. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his holy and inerrant word. For the past few weeks, we've been reading Paul as he talks about the glorious gifts of New, Te New Covenant ministry. There had been opponents of his rise up in Corinth, leading the people astray and tearing down the ministry of Paul. Uh, they undermined his gospel, preaching an entirely different gospel, which is no gospel at all, where the rules and regulations of the old covenant were uh, being forced upon these brand new Gentile Christians. It was a yoke that the Jews could never bear with all of its demands, and now they were requiring new Corinthian Christians to um, adhere to the law. And in those verses that we studied, Paul compared the Old Covenant with the New Covenant, showing that in Christ there was a new and better way. The Old Covenant had been fulfilled in Jesus. It was glorious, but the glory had faded and passed away because it was suppressed by something that was new and more glorious. Paul has been explaining the glory of the covenant, this covenant, as he has talked about the permanence of its glory, about the gift of the Spirit of God given to believers, and about how the light of God had shone in their hearts. He had seen the glory of God in Jesus Christ on the Damascus Road, you know, when he was knocked off the horse and he saw uh, the brightness of the glory of Jesus Christ. And the Corinthian church, Paul says, had also seen the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ when the gospel had been preached and they had believed upon Jesus. It was a glorious gospel and a glorious covenant filled with blessing from God. But there's still this issue that Paul must deal with. And it's the accusation that he's weak, that he's not an apostle, that the fact that he suffers everywhere he goes is evidence that he's rejected by God because how can God work in such a weak and persecuted and afflicted man? 
isn't the glory of the new covenant that Paul preaches contradicted by the suffering and persecution and rejection of the, that his ministry constantly endures? Oh, Paul has an answer for that. While the brightness of the glory of God is shown in Jesus Christ through the preaching of the gospel, and while the Holy Spirit of God himself is given to those that trust in Jesus Christ, and while there's great victory over the forces of evil and over even death itself, Christianity is still about suffering and death and resurrection. That's the ultimate message. That's the story of Jesus, and it's the story of Paul, and it's the story of everyone who follows Jesus Christ. <clears throat> Excuse me. Paul uses this wonderful illustration about clay pots, right? Jars of clay, clay pots. As he anticipates this question that's asked of him, how can something so glorious in the new covenant in Jesus Christ be championed by someone so weak? And here's Paul's answer. We have this treasure in jars of clay. Now the Corinthian church would have seen that. The Corinthian people would have seen that worked out in their lives on a daily basis. Uh, uh, that illustration, everywhere they went, they saw simple clay pots, fragile clay pots, storing sometimes some of the greatest treasure on earth. I was reading the other day about the Dead Sea, the Dead sea Scroll findings. I think most of you know about those. In 1946, there were these Bedouin sheep herders that discovered uh, ancient manuscripts thousands of years old. It's the greatest discovery of ancient manuscripts of all time. There were scrolls of the Old Testament books that were found that date back to two centuries before Jesus Christ came. There were also uh, additional scrolls that shed incredible light on uh, Jewish life and thought in the years leading up to the birth of Jesus. And upon the discovery, the Bedouins started looking for more manuscripts in caves and they began investigating the market value of what they had found. They weren't sure what they had exactly, but they knew it was something that, that potentially, at least potentially, had value. At first they were told that what they had was a forgery. Then someone offered them the equivalent of what would be today about $350. But the truth was that what they had was invaluable. And do you know what this treasure was stored in? Clay pots. That's what it was in. Because that's what people often store valuable things in. They had treasure in clay pots. And the Judaizers were saying... If what Paul teaches is so great and if he's so important and if he's an apostle of Jesus Christ, he's, why is he so weak? And Paul answers, God stores valuable treasure in old fragile clay pots just like you do. Now, why would God do it that way? Well, he gives us the answer, doesn't he? Why would something so valuable be entrusted to God, uh, by God to these weak and fragile vessels? And Paul explains it in verse 7. It's to show us that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. Paul has done nothing but embrace the weakness that his opponents have so happily accused him of. He hasn't even begun to say that he's anything other than someone who's weak. And in this epistle, he has 
demonstrate himself to be a prisoner of war being paraded around by God as he goes to his death. And he's happy to do it. He has spoken of enduring affliction so great that he despaired of life itself. He admits to preaching a gospel that is some, for some is the fragrance of life, but for others it's rejected as the stench of death. And what we know about uh, Paul from the Bible and what is passed down in tradition shows us the immense Weakness that he had to deal with on a daily basis. He had scars on his body from the beatings and the stonings that he endured following Christ. When you read in Galatians, he writes there that he bears on his body the marks of Christ. He apparently could not see very well as evidence from one of the stories that's in Acts. He may have even had bulging eyes because of what's mentioned in Galatians. He says there, he says, I know that, uh, I know that if, if you could, you'd pluck out your eyes and give them to me. He was stooped over. Apparently his oratory skills were something to be desired, at least according to the Corinthians. They were disappointed in his preaching and, and his ability to speak in rhetoric and philosophy with the wise scholars of the time. They'd heard of his reputation before he came and to Corinth and they were disappointed when, they got, when he got there. And apparently they saw Paul and said, this, this, this is our guy? Is this the best we've got? Because Paul did not seek glory for himself. He didn't try to present himself as above anyone. He lowered himself in that culture to the status of a servant. And what others saw as shame in Paul, he embraced. And why? Because in all the success of his ministry, it wasn't Paul that was getting the credit. It was the glory. The glory for the success of Paul's ministry would go to God and God alone. God was demonstrating to Paul that the greatest champion of Christianity was this suffering nobody who was just thoroughly unimpressive to people. God does things, does big things in people who are content in being nobodies. And church, if we want to be pleasing to God, we will want to get him to get all the credit for anything good that comes from us in our lives or anything good that comes from our church. And we could start by knowing that we are simple and fragile clay pots. We are, inex we are inexpensive. We are easily breakable. And I realize that that's such the opposite message given to our culture, to, given by our culture today that is obsessed with self-esteem and gaining affirmation. Because we're told to think of how wonderful we are and, you know, have confidence in ourselves and, 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 and you know, uh, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough and doggone it, people like me. Look in the mirror and say that, you know, over and over again and you'll believe it. And we're told that. And that kind of thinking has even seeped into the church. There's a popular evangelist who's famously talked about how valuable we are as evidenced by the fact that of what heaven gave to redeem us. His message was that if Jesus was so valuable, then just think how valuable we are since heaven emptied itself of its greatest treasure to redeem us. And then he compared himself to an expensive sports car in value. Well, I don't think he's read 2 Corinthians 4 verse 7, has he? And so it's, it's, that's wrong thinking on two ends. First is that 
it wasn't our value that necessitated that the prince of heaven would come for us. It wasn't because we were so valuable. It's because we are so broken and so sinful that it took the perfect Jesus Christ to redeem us. No one else would do. We're not big, expensive, we're not expensive, big ticket items. We're reclamation projects. That's what we are. That's what we are. You want to, you know, we talked about redoing this basement down here in Fellowship Hall, man. It would, you could put a new building over there for more than you can do that because it's a reclamation project. And so, uh, and, and then secondly, our value is not independent of Jesus Christ. Apart from him, we are worthless clay pots, fragile, easily broken, but when we're in Christ's great treasure dwells within us. I'm reminded of the lyrics to a hymn. Here's what it says. My worth is not in what I own, not in the flesh of strength and bone, but in the costly wounds of love at the cross. And it goes on to say, two wonders here that I confess my worth and my unworthiness, my values fixed, my ransoms paid at the cross. And isn't that truth just wonderful and liberating that I can, I can just... just readily acknowledge my fragileness, my, my ordinariness, and, 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 and that in many eyes that I have on face value, of, I'm of little worth, and yet valuable treasure exists in me through Christ. It gives me worth and integrity and an immense value. Calvin attempts to summarize Paul here saying, those who allege the contemptible appearance of my person with the view of detracting from the dignity of my ministry are unfair and unreasonable judges for a treasure is not the less valuable that the vessel in which it is deposited is not a precious one. In other words, the ordinariness of Paul doesn't reduce the value of the treasure that's placed within him. It can't. So I don't, I don't go around hanging my head in shame because I'm just an old clay pot. I don't have to repeat endless affirmations about myself to trick me into thinking that I'm better than I really am. No, I can hold my head high and know that I've been created for a purpose by the sovereign God of heaven. And my chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. It's what I was made for. Yes, I am just an old clay pot. But I've been made for a purpose. I've been made for God's glory and made for him. He has placed the greatest treasure in me. Again, we contemplate why Paul would teach this concept here. Well, there's a point of emphasis that he knows he's got to drive home to the Corinthians. And you go back to the message his opponents were conveying that they had this triumphalistic view of God-ordained ministry. They thought that the perils and persecutions that Paul endured was God's frown upon him. They saw his appearance and presence as a, as a knock on him. They saw themselves as superior to Paul and, and, seemed to have, and, and they seemed to have boasted in special powers that they had that he didn't have. Their claim for power and ministry seems to arise from them. They were not persecuted. They had a more pleasing appearance. They were special in their powers. In other words, their calling came from within them. They were fit. But Paul is 
teaching here that when someone is a true and authentic minister of Jesus Christ, it's not them that'll get the glory. It's God that will. You've probably heard the old saying, doesn't, God doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies the called. Yeah, Paul suggests here in the teaching that we are merely, Paul, Paul suggests here in the teaching that we are merely clay pots housing great treasure, that God's revelation of his glory in the gospel can actually only be given in the weakness of man. As soon as a man preaches his own capableness, his own morality, his own fitness, the power of God in the gospel is denied. But out of weakness and suffering, the gospel is proclaimed in great power. And, and it's because in reality, man is spiritually weak. As soon as you have preached yourself as fit, and as a, you know, if I was to stand up here and tell you, you know, you guys need to be like me and my family, and the way we are, that's the way you need to be. And if you'll come after me, you know, well, if y'all spend a couple hours at home with us, you'll figure out that's not true at all. Uh, <laughs> but as soon as I do that, then you have preached your, I've preached myself and I've not preached Christ. As soon as you get the list of things out there to preach for a man to do, to be respectable in the world and God pleasing, you're preaching human power and not the power of God. Let me give it to you in practical terms for you today. I want you to hear me here. The moral fabric of American society is rapidly changing. There's, there's no question about it. There's no doubt about it. And the great majority of it is not for the good. Um, and people are complaining about it. They'll say, here's what people will say. America needs to get its morals back. God is going to judge us. We need to get back to what we used to be if God's going to continue to bless us. I want to tell you something. That's legalism. As long as that legalism, it's blasphemy. Do you think that God was happy with slavery and then segregation? Do you think he was happy with organized crime and the exploitation of the poor by the rich? Do you think he was happy with election fraud and crimes in high places and serial killers and materialism and pornography and upstanding men in the community with their families for everyone to see but covering up the children of their affairs with other women and keeping up with the appearances for everyone else to see while secretly behind closed doors. All kinds of terrible things were happening. Folks, America may be the greatest country that has ever been. But let's not kid ourselves. It's not the morals that ever gained us God's favor. He has always been gracious to us in spite of ourselves. And I'm here to tell you today that it's not a return to the old morals that we need. And if I preach that to you, I have sided against Paul and with his opponents in Corinth, preaching myself and preaching your ability to be pleasing to God in and of yourself. So what we must preach, so what must we preach, if not a return to American morals and good deed doing, what must we preach? The cross. That's what we must preach. It's the cross. It must be proclaimed. It's the cross where my sins are forgiven. Not just the public sins that everyone knows about and agrees that everyone's done. Oh, yeah, we've all done that. Yeah, we need our forgiveness. No, the private sins that you don't want your best friend, your wife, your husband knowing about. <clears throat> Excuse me. The sins of the heart and the mind that you'd be too ashamed for anyone to know you understand that something's only a sin if, if you did it. That's a failed logic. The Bible teaches us that from within us comes all kinds of evil. 
that whatever you've done in life, as bad as it may be, whatever you've done that as bad as that is, you're actually worse than that. That's what it is. Because you, there are things you simply could not act upon if you wanted to. And if you doubt me on this, what would you do if we had a supercomputer here and we could plug your brain into it there and it could broadcast all your thoughts for everyone to see? You would do everything you could to keep that from, from being shown. Even your best friend, right? You know you would. Church, it's not moralism that we need to preach. It's not moralism that we need to preach. It's the cross that we must preach. And, and there's all this accusation of weakness hurled at Paul, and it's no wonder the world hates the cross. It's because their weakness is on display. Man wants to know what they can do to gain favor with God because they want to think the power that they have to make themselves right with God's within them. But the reality is they have a debt they cannot pay because it's too big. And by nature, man wants to know what he can do with his hands to make amends with God. And it's because he wants to cover up what he's done. He doesn't want anyone to know about it. You don't want me to know about it. I don't want you to know what I know about me. And you don't want you, me to know about what you know about you. I think I got that right. You don't want it, do you? You don't want that. And we must point people to what they do not want to be pointed to. We must point them to the cross. That's where their sins are paid for. And the only way you access it is to deny yourself and confess and admit that what, what has been paid for at the cross lies within you. You know what Jesus died for? That's within you. you, you, lie, you that lies within you. And what is it? Because you might be sitting there thinking, what is it? What is it that lies within you? I'll tell you what it does. This is what the Bible says in Galatians 5, 19. Paul says the works of the flesh are evident. This is in you and me. I'll say me too. You and me. Listen, here's the works of the flesh. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these, and whoever does them, will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's what the Bible says. And whoever covers them up will not inherit the kingdom of God. In Ephesians 2, he says that we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, listen here, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind. And were by nature the children of wrath like the rest of mankind. There can be no preaching of man's strength, of his morals, of his ability to do well. He is weak. He is a clay pot. You are weak. You are a clay pot. You're fragile. You can be broken. You age and don't age well, right? Stuff breaks down and you're going to break one day and that clay pot's going to be discarded. But if there's great treasure in you, oh, yeah, somehow God's going to make it all brand new, isn't he? You must be taken from trusting in your own strength and taken to the cross where your weakness is on full display. And that's why men hate the preaching of the cross. They are exposed. Incidentally, that's why it's often been that preachers of the cross have been so despised. It's not just Paul. Preachers of the cross have been so despised. 
and so lowly and so rejected and so persecuted. It's so that the power of God might be seen in such weak and lowly and rejected men. Listen here. I'm going to tell you something's true. Find a preacher who's loved and celebrated by the world and you'll find a man that does not preach the cross. That's what you'll find. He'll be too worried about building bridges to the culture to be about pleasing God. Guarantee. Guarantee. But if you find a man proclaiming Christ and the cross, the world laughs and the world triumphs over them. Sometimes imprisons them. Sometimes burns them at the stake. The power of God is shown in them through their weakness. In them, the cross is proclaimed and God's elect are drawn by the power of the preaching of the gospel. Let a man stand before others as an old clay pot, a weak vessel, and someone to be ridiculed by a self-sufficient culture so that the gospel may be preached the power of God in him revealed and the true people of God might be brought out of darkness and into the marvelous light of Jesus Christ. Now what about you? Are you willing to embrace the cross? Are you willing to proclaim the cross? Is there joy for you knowing that you are simply a fragile clay pot that God has chosen to house this great treasure in? Are you joyful knowing that you are God's prisoner of war being led in triumphal procession to your death? The weakness that Paul proclaims in himself and the followers of Jesus, it's staggering. It's an embarrassment. You expect out of such a man like Paul a, a great victory speech and he'd be a handsome leader. But you don't get that. You get the admission of tremendous weakness and susceptibility to persecution. But it is this way because in weakness it is shown that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. So find your satisfaction in what the world cannot give. Find it in the all-sufficient Jesus Christ and embrace your personal weakness that you may know his great power and his great glory. All right, clay pots. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, oh, we thank you for the treasure that's within us because if we're honest, Lord, honest, we are just fragile clay pots, easily broken, so weak. But Lord, what great treasure you put in us. I don't know. Maybe there's someone here this morning who senses the call of Jesus Christ upon their life today, that they want this treasure in themselves for the glory of God. And if they would, Lord, bring them to repentance and faith in Christ. For this is in Christ's name that we pray these things. And amen. Our hymn of invitation is hymn number 411. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. Are you able to say that? That sweetly you trust in Christ? If you want to say that for the first time today, I will talk with you and pray with you about what it means to be a Christian. Please stand and sing him 411 with us.